Judges chapter 8. Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, Why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. But Gideon replied, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abiezer? God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianite army. What have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger subsided. Gideon then crossed the Jordan River with his 300 men. And though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. When they reached Succoth, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, Please give my warriors some food. They are very tired, and I am chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth replied, Catch Zeba and Zulmana, Zulmunna first, and then we will feed your army. So Gideon said, after the Lord gives me victory over Zeba and Zalmunna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and the briars of the wilderness. From there Gideon went up to Peniel, and again he asked for food, but he got the same answer. So he said to the people of Peniel, after I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. By this time, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with 15,000 warriors, all that remained of the allied armies of the east, for 120,000 had already been killed. Gideon circled around the caravan route east of Noba and Jogbiha, taking the Midianite army by surprise. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two Midianite kings, fled with, uh, fled, but Gideon chased them down and ca- captured all their warriors. After this, Gideon returned from the battle by way of Heres Pass. There he captured a young man from Succoth and demanded that he write down the names of all the 77 officials and elders in the town. Gideon then returned to Succoth and said to the leaders, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. When we were here before, you taunted me saying, catch Zeba and Zalmunna first and then we will feed your exhausted army. But Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He also tore down the tower of Peniel and killed all the men in the town. Then Gideon asked Zeba and Zalmunna, the men you killed at Tabor, what were they like? Like you, they replied. They all had the look of a king's son. They were my brothers and the sons of my own mother, Gideon exclaimed. As surely as the Lord lives, I wouldn't kill you if you hadn't killed them. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword, for he was only a boy and was afraid. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said to Gideon, be a man, kill us yourself. So Gideon killed them, both, and took the royal ornaments from their necks and and off their camels. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. 
the Lord will rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do not, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from the fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied, they spread out a cloak and each one of them threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants. The purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshipping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. That is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem, who gave birth to a son, who he named Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old, and he was buried in the grave of his father, Joash, at Ophrah, in the land of the clan of Abiezer. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshipping the images of Baal, making Baal Bereth their god. They forgot the Lord their god, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them, nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. Okay, well, uh, we've been looking at Gideon for the last uh, four weeks. We had a week off last week. Uh, but just a recap for those of you that haven't been with us or you've missed. Uh, we began uh, by looking at uh, the first uh, bit of the Gideon story. And we met Gideon in a wine press. And uh, you'll remember that Gideon was a, a bit of a wimp. He was hiding in the wine press. And uh, we said, I won't go back, we said that... Uh, He was an unlikely hero. Uh, But God spoke through the angel these words over him that he was going to be a mighty warrior. And uh, it seemed very unlikely, uh, considering where we found Gideon, that he would ever become a mighty warrior. And then in the second week, we looked at uh, continuous story of Gideon and we saw that he was given his first special assignment. Uh, He had to tear down uh, this idol to Baal that was in his own backyard. And uh, he was given a special anointing. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that enabled him to call uh, the Israelites to arms. And he was given a special assurance. The bit of the story we all know about Gideon is Gideon and his fleece. Where uh, Gideon laid the fleece out. And uh, if, it was, if it was wet and the, and the, and the ground was dry. Or was it, was it, if it was dry and the ground. Forget. But you, you know the story, don't you? Uh, and each time God... Uh, met Gideon's request and gave him that reassurance that he really was uh, calling him. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago we saw Gideon actually going into battle and we thought about the fact that less is more because uh, the first thing God told him to do was to get rid of, of, uh, of the big part of his army and so that Gideon was eventually left uh, with just 300 men. Uh, against the odds, uh, it was about 400 to 1. Uh, the odds that they were facing 
Uh, and so it seemed terribly unlikely that they could win the battle, but they did. Gideon's 300, uh, using, uh, again, God encouraged them. Uh, Gideon took a friend with him, two are better than one, and he, and he overheard this dream that one of the army that they were about to go into battle had. Uh, about being defeated by the Israelites, which encouraged Gideon again. And uh, then they went into battle, and it was a case of really of call my bluff, uh, because Gideon's army just rattled their uh, jars and smashed them and blew the trumpets, and the, the Midianites went into complete chaos and started killing themselves and doing the, the Gideon's job for him. And uh, they defeated them. And that's where we left the story of Gideon two weeks ago, and that's where we pick it up today. And there's a sense in which if the story had finished there, uh, it would have been a great story with a, a wonderful ending and Gideon had been triumphant. He'd come from nowhere and he'd become somebody. Uh, but then we have Judges chapter 8. And uh, I wanted to read the whole of chapter 8 so that you, you heard it all for yourselves of, of how Gideon's story uh, plays out. And uh, as we continue with the story of Gideon... Uh, first of all, we, we see that Gideon has to cope uh, with criticism. Ian's already introduced us to the idea. And uh, a bit of paper down here, Ian, that you've left. I won't read it out for you. I won't read it out for you, mate. Uh, oh, no, I've got four points, by the way. Just, just, just so I'm not predictable. <laughs> uh, coping with criticism. Uh, Gideon has to, you, you would think after all that Gideon's been through, uh, that the people would be absolutely chuffed to bits with him, wouldn't you? And would have nothing but praise for this guy. Uh, you know, he wasn't a warrior. And, and God empowered him to do all that he'd done. And uh, he comes back, and he's, he's triumphant. And he's probably expecting, you know, a bit of a party, uh, a bit of a celebration. Uh, but, he, but the first things he does is he faces some criticism. And uh, the uh, Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticised him sharply. They criticised him sharply. Anybody that has ever been involved in any sort of leadership in any in any place, whether it be in church, whether it be in the workplace, uh, whether it be in home, uh, will know that you cannot be a leader uh, without facing criticism. It kind of comes with the territory. Uh, you will be criticised. And uh, it's interesting to see how Gideon uh, copes with criticism. Because most of us, as Ian's already pointed out, most of us don't uh, cope very well with criticism. Uh, most of us don't like it. Uh, most of us become very defensive uh, when we are criticised. When I was at college, um, many, many years ago, we had this thing called sermon class. And as soon as you got to college, one of the first things you heard about was this sermon class that you knew you had to go through during the third year. And it was kind of looming over you. And you watched each year as the third years trembled up to the uh, pulpit. And the whole college, all the staff was present. And uh, you had to preach a sermon. And then the people present would criticise you. And it was horrible. It really was awful. You saw one person after the other literally die in the pulpit. 
And and some people uh, some people were were very good with the with with the criticism. Um, you know, some people uh, feel it is their job in life just to criticise people. And uh, I remember one sermon class uh, because uh, as well as everybody having a goal, you had an, an official critic from uh, the students and an offic- official critic from the staff. And I remember one particular sermon class where the poor chap, he, he, he stood in and he'd given his best and he's preaching in difficult circumstances. And the, the student uh, that was criticising him had obviously done his homework. And he, he went through the whole sermon and he said, you've nicked this bit from this book. It's on page 27 of somebody's book. You've nicked this bit. And he'd obviously spent weeks going through the poor guy's sermon. And so how he found all these quotes that the person had nicked, it was incredible. But you could see that the, the person was delighting in destroying this person. He was taking delight. And, uh, and, and that's the thing, isn't it, with, 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 with criticism. It's the idea, you know, that you're kind of saying, I could have done better without having to prove that you could have done better. Very often, uh, when you receive criticism, you learn more about the person that's giving the criticism than you do about yourself. Very often, it's about, it's about them and their ego. And so, there are people that, that love to give criticism and, and delight in destroying. And we've all seen the, 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 the television programs, you know, where you have judges' panels, and uh, they tear people and make fun of people, and then they call it entertainment. And uh, obviously lots of people find it very entertaining. Um, But it makes you think, doesn't it, how do we cope with criticism? How do you and I cope when somebody criticises something that we've done, something that we've put a lot of effort into, and uh, a lot of work, and then somebody comes along and pours cold water on it and tells you what a rubbish job you've done, and how they could have done it ten times better. Um, I, I grew up in a, in, in a family where my, my father uh, was uh, ultra uh, critical of, of everybody and, and everything. So I've kind of grown up with that. And uh, he was very critical of church. He was very critical. He, he was, a, he was a, a brilliant musician. Uh, fantastic pianist, organist. Uh, but he was horribly critical to other people, and especially music musicians. And uh, and, and, and and preachers didn't 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 uh, stand much of a chance either. And uh, he would always tell me, you know, how long my sermon had been, and uh, and what was wrong with it. And 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 there was good things about that, but it was also uh, there are people that just delight in, in criticism. And uh, but we should be careful because very often. Uh, there might be truth in criticism. Our friend uh, Jeff Lucas, or my friend Jeff Lucas, who wrote this book, Gideon, says, uh, leaders should avoid defensiveness that causes us to reject criticism out of hand because the attitude of the critic is wrong. Sometimes people say the right thing in the wrong way and we stumble into error, rejecting the message because of the manner of the messenger. The men of Ephraim were sharp, but Gideon still heard them. Gideon doesn't make the mistake that many of us make in that we actually throw away all the criticism and we don't listen to it because of the way it's delivered. And it's interesting to see what Gideon actually does. And this is what he says. He says, he says, but he answered, why, what have I accomplished compared to you? Do you notice his tactics here in dealing with criticism? Uh, he's, he's, he's using a little bit of praise. Uh, 
Aren't the gleamings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiza? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? Well, actually, he did quite well because with 300 men, he defeated an army that was 400 times as great of him. But he's, he's playing down what he's done. And, 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 and notice, um, at this, their resentment against him subsided. So there's just a little hint there in, in, in ways that you can you can disarm people that are being nasty in the criticism. You don't. The, the temptation is to join in and, and attack them back, and you can very easily disarm people in in listening to what they're saying and saying, "Well, yeah, I think you probably could have done a, a far better job because I've seen you how, and how wonderful you are at this." And and don't say that in a sarcastic way, obviously. Uh, you know, say it in, in, a, in a genuine way. Uh, and, and what Gideon is, 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 is doing there is, is he's using grace uh, to disarm his critics. And it works. It works. They were disarmed. So, here's a bit of advice. It's usually best to be generous with praise, but cautious with criticism. Let's not destroy people. You know, if we see somebody, um, you know, not do a job perhaps as, as, as well as they could have done in the church. Let's not destroy them so that they never do it, never attempt to do it again. There's many people sitting in churches who've dared to do something in church and then somebody's hammered them for it and they've never dared to do anything else again. So we need to be careful because we're in a job. We want to build people up. We want to encourage people. So let's be generous uh, with praise and cautious uh, when it comes to criticism. And uh, another thing is, you know, let's pray for people. When we do not pray for, for one another, we pray on one another. Quite like that. When we do not pray for one another, we pray on one another. So let's pray, P-R-A-Y, rather than pray, P-R-E-Y. Impressed with my spilling there? Only four letters, I know, but give me a bit of praise. <laughs> and then just criticise and pull my... PowerPoint's a bit when I've made a spelling mistake, that's okay. So coping with criticism, we all struggle. Um, but what we see is, is that Gideon here, he does a good job in coping with criticism. And uh, sometimes we do do a good job and sometimes we don't. And then if that wasn't enough, he had to cope with criticism, he also has to uh, react to rejection. Uh, Gideon goes on with his army, still pursuing the Midianites. They've not all gone away. He's still pursuing them. And they're traveling uh, in pursuit of the Midianites. And they're tired and they're worn out and they're battle-weary. And they come to this place called Succoth. Uh, clues, the, the, the clues in the title of the place, okay? Clues in the title of the place. And they want some help. And he said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out. And I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zelamuna, the kings of Midian. He wants them to, to help them. He's won this mighty battle. He's, he, he's now, he's taken on this idea of being a, a mighty warrior. He's been a mighty warrior. And uh, the people of Succoth, they say, but the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zelamuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Why should we help? There's a sense in which the people, the leaders of this place, they, they still wanted to hedge their bets because 
Gideon's army is still, is still minute compared to what's left of the Midianites. There's still a big battle to be won. And uh, there's no guarantee that Gideon's going to win this battle. So these people are hedging the bets and they're, and they're not going to side with, with Gideon in case he loses and word gets out to the Midianites that they help them and then the Midianites come and, 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 and take, take it out on them. So they're, they're kind of thinking, well, the battle's not over yet and we don't really know whether you're going to be turn out triumphant or not, so we're not going to help you. And uh, and so it goes on. From there he went to Peniel uh, and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Uh, this is how Gideon responds. Uh, and I wonder how we react to rejection. How do we react to rejection? You know, um, are you passing through Succoth? You know, I wonder whether Gideon, when he was leading Succoth, he, he turned to his men and says, that place really Succoth. And one of his men says, well, it, you, you saw the sign when we came in, you know, welcome to Succoth. I, probably, I promise I won't do you any, any more jokes about, about Succoth. I'm not doing any jokes about Manchester United either. No way, Jose. But I wonder whether you're passing through Succoth, whether maybe life does Succoth at the moment, and uh, whether you feel unsupported and, and unhelped or undervalued, because because we, we, we travel through these places, don't we? And uh, sometimes we do face that that feeling of, of being rejected and not being accepted and not being welcomed and, and, and not being appreciated. And it's difficult. And the, 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 the passage of Scripture doesn't really comment on whether the way Gideon reacts is correct or not. Uh, Gideon's obviously annoyed and angry about the fact that these people won't help them. And he says, just you wait until I come back and you will wish I'd helped you because I'm going to tear down your, tire, your tower. I'm going to kill your leaders. And I'm going to take revenge. And it's not clear. It's not clear. Uh, commentators and, and, and people that write books about judges, uh, some people think that Gideon was, was doing the right thing and, and that God was in it. And some people think he was doing the wrong thing. And there's a sense in which you decide. Uh, you decide. It seems to me that, uh, that the, the passages in, in the Old Testament where, you know, there's a, a lot of killing and a lot of cruelty uh, that doesn't seem to square itself very much with what we read in the New Testament about forgiving your enemies and uh, turning the other cheek and, and, and things like that. And uh, whenever we come to passages like this, I'm, I'm a New Testament person and, I, and I'm interested in what Jesus said we should do. And uh, I don't think Gideon does react uh, well here. He's, he's annoyed and he's angry. And when we're angry and, and annoyed, uh, we also have to be cautious about how we act. Because again, you know, we, when, when, when people are noise, the easiest thing is, is, to, is to hit out an attack. And although we probably wouldn't hit out an attack physically, uh, you know, we do hit out an attack verbally. And just like with the criticism, we can, we can use sharp words, can't we, that actually hurt people and, and actually uh, injure people. And there are many people here this morning that have been hurt and injured, uh, if not physically, then emotionally, uh, because people have sought to take revenge for something that you have done, or seem, or they think you've done something to them. 
And so I would say, you know, this is where things start to go wrong in the story of Gideon. This is where things start to go wrong. Reacting to rejection, I don't think Gideon reacts very well to uh, being rejected. And then, of course, uh, Gideon is, is spoiled by success. He has been Im- immensely successful. And not only sometimes is it difficult to deal with criticism, some people find it difficult to deal with success. Some people find it difficult uh, to deal with being successful. Uh, you know, uh, some people aren't used to being praised, they're expecting criticism, and then you catch the minister off, off, off guard and you give them a load of praise. And you say, that, gosh, that was wonderful what you did today. And, uh, you know, we don't know how to react because we're used to people saying, well, the, the sermon went on too long and we didn't like the music and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And some people are caught off guard. And here we see Gideon, uh, and he really is spoiled by success. The people come to him, the Israelites, uh, said to him, Gideon, rule over us. You, your son, your grandson, because you've saved us out of the hand of Midian. Uh, these people at last, after all Gideon's been through, he's been through the battle, he's, he's, he's been criticised, he's been rejected, and suddenly the Israelites do want to throw a party, and they want to make him king, and they want to reward him, because he has won them. But notice that the Israelites say that it's Gideon that has saved him. And all through the story... Uh, the one thing that stood out is, it's, is, is that it was made perfectly obvious that Gideon couldn't possibly do this without the help of God Almighty. And we think Gideon, at first it seems that Gideon's got this, but Gideon told him, I will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. And we all say, Amen, Gideon. You tell them that it was God that won the, won the, won the battle and, and, and not you. And that you don't want any of their credit and you don't want any of their praise. You want it all to go to God. That's what you want. And we're all jumping up and down and saying, Amen. Come on, Gideon, you mighty warrior. And if it ended there, uh, the end of the story of Gideon would be great, wouldn't it? But the, it goes on. And Gideon says, yeah, but maybe there is one thing you can do for me. Um, I... I have one request, one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Um, and Gideon, and you can understand Gideon's thinking, he, he probably feels, you know, I, I deserve this, I've worked hard, I've put my whole life and family at risk, and, and why shouldn't I get some of the rewards for what I have done? And the Israelites are telling him that it's all about him, it's all about you, Gideon. You're the one that, that so you are the mighty warrior, you've won the battle. And the people say, "Yeah, yeah, come on, we'll uh, we'll give you some gold. You 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 take our gold because you're the you're the guy, Gideon." And of course, it does go to his head, and uh, he is spoiled by success. And uh, just as we can ruin and crush people with criticism and rejection, we can actually ruin and spoil people by giving them too much praise and not actually being honest with them. And. Uh, and we've seen, and we see, don't we, in the world that people who are, who are successful and make a mess of their lives. We see it all the time. And, uh, Gideon, what's he gonna do with all this gold? Well, Gideon made the gold into an epod, which he placed in opera, his town, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And I know what you're thinking. And the minister, how scary is that? I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. What's an epod? <laughs> What's an epod and do we need one? Do we need to get one? And can we afford it? Anybody got any earrings? 
Can you place them in there? No. Uh, well, an epod. What, 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 what is an, an epod? Well, it's a kind of a, a priestly garment that, that the priest would have worn. Uh, and when he was, when he was going into, uh, uh, to, to, to God's presence, he would have put this epod on and, and it was about, uh, seeking God's, uh, guidance. But this was obviously an epod that was made out of gold. So it perhaps wasn't something that Gideon was going to wear, but it was something that, that the, uh, high priest used to discern God's will for them. And you think, hang on a sec, this, this rings a, a bell. This, this, this sounds a, a little bit about, a little, this, this, this sounds a little bit like a golden fleece. This sounds like a golden fleece. Gideon's going up market now. He, he had the sheepy woolly fleece. And now there's a real sense in which he's building himself a, a golden fleece and calling it an epod. And, uh, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we had a device, you know, that we could use? And, and is this your will, God, for us? Uh, shall we call this man or woman to be our minister? Yes or no? And the epod goes, uh-uh, not this person. Uh, should we call this person to be a, a deacon or not? And the epod says, yes, call this person. No, it would be great, wouldn't it, if we had a device that that, that did the work for us and so we, we could know what God's will was. And uh, wouldn't you like an epod? Wouldn't you love one? You can, you can see the attraction why, why Gideon, and we know Gideon's, we know Gideon's history, don't we? We know Gideon that he, he was a bit of a diver. He wasn't, he wasn't, he needed that reassurance all the time. He needed the, 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 the angel to, to do a bit of magic so that he knew it really was the angel Lord. He needed the fleece. He needed the dream before he went into battle. He needed this reassurance in his life. And, uh, Roy Clement says, poor Gideon, he's always had a problem with guidance from reinsurance, you recall. No doubt he regarded his epod as an excellent investment, a sort of permanent fleece to have on tap whenever needed. Unfortunately, the guidance the epod gave him and his compatriots was disastrous. Gideon led the people straight back into the kind of idolatrous mindset against which, at the beginning of his public career, he had so firmly stood against. It's not a great ending to the story of Gideon, is it? Spoiled by success. Spoiled by success. And then fourthly, Ian, fourthly, my final point, am I joking? Leaving a legacy, leaving a legacy, leaving a legacy. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Ophra of the Ebersarites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baalbaraft as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from their hands of all their enemies on every side. It is a sad ending to the story of Gideon. And, uh, but... The thing I like about the story of Gideon is, is we can relate to it because things don't always work out in the way that we would like them to, do we? Sometimes we do have uh, moments of success followed by moments of failure. And uh, that's certainly something I can relate to and I guess it's something that, that you can relate to. And the Bible doesn't present us with unbelievable heroes who always get it right. Gideon's a real person, an earthly person, who, it seems to me, most of the time makes pretty much a mess of it and gets it wrong. But there are, there were those moments when he got it right. And uh, maybe we can identify that with that. 
because a lot of the time we are fumbling around in the dark. We don't feel like mighty warriors. We feel like wimps in wine presses, and we identify with the wimp in the wine press probably better than the the, the Gideon, the mighty warrior. Uh, but God used Gideon, and uh, God can use us despite all our failures, all our faults, all our wimpiness. And uh, again, Jeff Lucas says, what will our legacy be? Will we let that heroism creep into our Monday mornings, confront modern altars of Baal, and never forget the key, the vital truth that makes a difference between fruit and thorns, power and weakness? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What will our legacy be as we come to the end of the story of Gideon? It makes us think about, you know, what will people remember about us? What will we leave behind? Gideon leaves behind a bit of a mess. He he leaves the people, in a sense, where he found them, uh, worshipping Baal, which is a sad end to what could have been a, a great story. And we need to make sure that, you know, we're leaving a good legacy, that we are building people up and we are encouraging people Uh, We need to make plans. We need to encourage our youngsters in the faith. We need to encourage... It was interesting, wasn't it, doing those uh, age ranges this morning. We can see where the gaps are, can't we? You know, we don't... We All churches are the same. Don't think it's just here. You know, there's this gap, you know, between the 20s and 40s that we we struggle. And in in some way, you know, we are failing as as a church and, and as a church in general in reaching those people. You know, we do quite well, don't we, with children and, and youngsters. But when they get to a certain age, we, we do lose people. And uh, we want to, to leave a legacy, don't we, uh, where we're building people up and, and, and helping people to continue in the faith. And uh, we need to think and pray about that as we do that. So there we come to the end of the story of Gideon. Uh, as I said, it's, 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 a, it's a shame, isn't it, that the story ends that way. But it's, it's reality, it's life, it's, it's rough and tough and messy. And I don't know about you, but I can identify with that. And it's there for us to read. And of course, we believe in the one who can cope with all that messiness. Uh, when Jesus comes, he comes into that messiness. And uh, he calls people who continue to be messy. Have you noticed when Jesus calls people, they don't suddenly become, you know, white as white and, and perfect. They remain. Uh, they still have rough edges. Think of Peter, you know, still rough edges, still making mistakes, but trying to follow Jesus. And Jesus can deal with messy people. He can use messy people. And he won't always sort all the mess out. Sometimes we'll be just left with some of that mess in our lives. Uh, but he still loves us and wants to use us. And he still can make mighty warriors out of every and each one of you. Amen.